And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is August the 16th, 228th day of the year. 137 days remain to the year's over with. Holidays and observances. National Roller Coaster Day. National Rum Day. National Tell the Joke Day. National Work from Home for Wellness Day. Bennington Battle Day. Eka People's Day. Juvederm Day. Now why do we need that celebration? National Airborne Day. Been there, done that, and ain't gonna do it again. National Authenticity Day. National Backflow Prevention Day. National Energy Multiplier Day. National Independent Worker Day. Parsi New Year. Restoration Day in Dominican Republic. Royal National Agricultural Show Day. And St. Roche's Day. Um, he's a patron, patron saint of something. All right, in 1 BC, Wang Mang consolidates his power in China as declared Marshal of State. Emperor Ai of Han, who died the previous day, had no heirs. Well, when in doubt, just take over. 942 AD, started the four-day Battle of the Almada in between the Hamdanids of Mosul and the Baradis of Basra over control of the Abbasid capital, Baghdad. 963 A.D., Michael II, II, Focus, crowned emperor of the Byzantine Empire, which was originally the Eastern Roman Empire. 1328, the House of Gonzaga seizes power in the Duchy of Mantua. They'll rule until 1708. 1513, Battle of the Spurs. King Henry VIII of England and his imperial allies defeat French forces who are forced to retreat. 1570, the Principality of Transylvania is established after John II Zippola announces his claim as King of Hungary in the Treaty of Spire. 1652, Battle of Plymouth, a conclusive naval action between the fleets of Michel de Reuter and George Ice Q in the First Anglo-Dutch War. 1777, American Revolutionary War. The American forces, led by General John Stark, rout the British and Brunswick troops under Friedrich Baum at the Battle of Bennington in Wallumsack, New York. 1780, American Revolutionary War, Battle of Camden. British defeat the Americans near Camden, South Carolina. 1792, Maximilien de Robespierre presents the petition of the Commune of Paris to the Legislative Assembly, which demanded the formation of a revolutionary tribunal. He wanted to hang them all. Eventually, he got hung. Or the guillotine. 1793, French Revolution. Olivier in mass is decreed by the National Convention. Now, for those who don't know what that is, it's a policy for mass national conscription, often in the face of invasion. The concept originated during the French Revolutionary Wars, particularly for the period following uh, August 16, 1793. That's when able-bodied men ages 18 to 25 were conscripted, formed an integral part of the creation of the national identity, making it distinct from 
other forms of conscription which had existed before that date. It stayed in uh, place until the Napoleonic Wars. Eighteen twelve, War of eighteen twelve. American General William Hull surrendered Fort Detroit without a fight to the British Army. Eighteen nineteen, Peter Lou massacre. Seventeen people die and six hundred are injured in cavalry charges at a public meeting of St. Peter's Field in Manchester, England. Eighteen forty one, President John Tyler vetoed a bill that called for the reestablishment of the Second Bank of the U.S. Enraged uh, Whig Party members riot outside the White House in the most violent demonstration on White House grounds in U.S. history. Of course, now we have the invasion of the Capitol by people invited in by Nancy Pelosi. Don't you know? 1858, President uh, Buchanan inaugurates the new transatlantic telegraph cable by exchanging greetings with Queen Victoria in the U.K., However, a weak signal forces a shutdown of the service inside of a few weeks. 1859, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany formally deposes the exiled House of Lorraine. 1863, the Dominican Restoration War begins when Gregorio Luperion raises the Dominican flag in Santo Domingo after Spain recolonized the country. 1869, Battle of Acosta Paraguayan battalion largely made up of children is massacred by the Brazilian army during the Paraguayan War. 1870, Franco-Prussian War. The Battle of Mars Latour is fought, resulting in a Prussian victory. 1876, Richard Wagner's Siegfried, the penultimate opera of his Ring Cycle, premieres at the Beirut Festival House. 1891, the Basilica of San Sebastian in Manila, the first all-steel church in Asia, is officially inaugurated in Brest on this date in 1891. 1896, Skookum, Jim Mason, George Carmack, and Dawson Charlie discover gold in a tributary of the Klondike River in Canada, which sets off the Klondike Gold Rush. 1900, the Battle of the River during the Second Boer War ends after the 13-day siege is lifted by the British. Battle of Begum when a force of between two and three thousand Boers surrounded a force of five hundred Australian, Rhodesian, Canadians, and British soldiers at a supply dump at Brockfontein Drift. Eighteen oh six, an eight point two Valparaiso earthquake hit central Chile, kills thirty eight hundred and eighty two people. Nineteen thirteen, Tohoku Imperial University, Japan. That's modern day. Tohoku University becomes the first university in Japan to admit female students. There go the standards. 1913, completion of the Royal Navy battle cruiser HMS Queen Mary. 1916, the Migratory Bird Treaty between Canada and the U.S. is signed. 1918, the Battle of Lake Baikal is fought between the Czechoslovak Legion and the Red Army. 1920, baseball player Ray Chapman of the Cleveland Indians is hit in the head by a fastball thrown by Carl Mays of the New York Yankees. On the very next day, Chapman became the second player to die from injuries sustained in a Major League Baseball game. 1920, the Congress of the Communist Party of Bukhara opens. It calls for armed revolution. 1920, Polish Soviet War, the Battle of Resumen concludes. So the Red Army is forced to turn away from Warsaw. 
1923, the U.K. gives the name Ross Dependency to part of the claimed Antarctic Territory and makes the Governor General of the Dominion of New Zealand its administrator. 1927, the Dole Air Race begins from Oakland, California to Honolulu, Hawaii, during which six out of eight participating planes crash or disappear. 1929, 1929, Palestine riots break out in mandatory uh, Palestine between Palestinian Arabs and Jews and continue until the end of the month. In total, 133 Jews and 116 Arabs are killed. 1930, the first color sound cartoon, Fiddlesticks, is released by UB Iwerks. Also in 1930, the first British Empire Games are opened in Hamilton, Ontario by the Governor General of Canada, the Viscount Villingdon. 1933, Christie Pitt's riot takes place in Toronto, Ontario. And it occurred at the Christie Pitt's playground in Toronto, Ontario. Riot can be understood in the context of the Great Depression, anti-Semitism, swastika clubs, and parades of resentment of foreigners in Toronto, as well as the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in Germany in 1933. 1942, World War II, U.S. Navy L-Class Blimp L-8 drifts in from the Pacific and crashes in Daly City, California. Two-man crew has vanished. 1944, the first flight of a jet with four slept wings, the Junkers Ju-287, took place on this date. 1945, the National Representatives Congress, the precursor of the current National Assembly of Vietnam, convenes in San Durong. 1946, mass riots in Kolkata begin. More than 4,000 people will be killed in 72 hours. In 1946, the Al Hyderabad Trade Union Congress is founded in Secunderabad. 1954, the first issue of Sports Illustrated is published. 1960, Cyprus gained its independence from the UK. 1960, Joseph Kittinger parachutes from a balloon over New Mexico at uh, 102,800 feet. 73 records that held in 2012. Those records are high altitude jump, free fall, and the highest speed by a human without an aircraft. Now, if you fall from that height right before you hit, jump up. Same thing you do if an elevator uh, cable snaps. 1964, Vietnam War. Coup d'etat replaces Durang Van Minh with General Nguyen Khan as President of South Vietnam. New constitutions established with aid from the U.S. Embassy. In 1966, Vietnam War. The House on American Activities Committee begins investigations of Americans who evaded the Viet Cong. The committee intends to introduce legislation making these activities illegal. Anti-war demonstrators disrupt the meeting and 50 people are arrested. Something I find interesting. They're willing to go to war to protest a war. Does that make any sense? 1972, and that's Now, I would point out that had the suit stayed out of trying to run it, we would probably have won the Vietnam War. 1972, in an unsuccessful coup d'etat attempt, a Moroccan Air Force fires on Hassan II of Morocco's plane while he's traveling back to Rabat. 
1975 Australian Prime Minister Gold Whitlam symbolically hands over land to the Gurindji people after the eight-year Wave Hill walk-off, a landmark event in the history of indigenous land rights in Australia. Commemorated in 1991, song by Paul Kelly in an annual celebration. 1987, now, indigenous land, I would point out, they didn't own it in the first place. They just moved in and set up shop. Same thing the colonizers did. 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 255, a McDonnell Douglas MD-82, crashes after takeoff in Detroit, Michigan. Killed 154 of the 155 people on board, plus two people on the ground. And as I've said many times, if you get hit by a falling airplane, you're having a really bad day. 1989, a solar particle event affects computers at the Toronto Stock Exchange, forcing a halt to trading. 1991, Indian Airlines Flight 257, a Boeing 737-200, crashes during approach to Imphal Airport, killed all 69 people on board. 2005, West Caribbean Airways Flight 708, a McDonnell Douglas MD-82, crashes in Mashakes, Venezuela, killing all 160 people on board. 2008, the Trump International Hotel and Tower in Chicago is topped off at 1,389 feet at the time, becoming the world's highest residence above ground level. 2010, how can you be the highest residence below ground level? Doesn't make any sense. 2010, Aries Flight 8250 crashes at Gustavo Rojas Penila International Airport in San Andres, uh, San Andres, the Providencia, Colombia, killing two people. 2012, South African police fatally shoot 34 miners and wound 78 more during an industrial dispute in Arakana near Oostenburg. 2013, the ferry St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, or Aquinas collides with a cargo ship and seats in Cebu, Philippines, killing 61 people with 59 others missing. 2015, more than 96 people were killed, hundreds injured during a series of air raids by the Syrian Arab Air Force on the Rebel Hill market town of Douma. 2015, Tragana Air Flight 267 and ATR-42 crashes in Aksibi, Bintang Mountains Regency, killing all 54 people on board. And in 2020, the August Complex fire in California burns more than a million acres of land. Well, we've been talking about unsolved murders and lord knows there's a lot of them and we're going to talk about a few more now, there have been uh, a number of early unsolved murders in some cases faded headlines and Memories are all that remain of sensational crimes. The grisly killing of a TV star, the disappearance of a beloved Catholic nun. These stories once riveted the nation, but somebody once told me that no matter what it is, the Kennedy assassination is an exception, but normally, no matter what happens, after two weeks, people forget I'm going to start out talking about a uh, murderer that I tried to track at one point, the Zodiac. Now, his reign of terror 
claimed at least five lives and put all of San Francisco on high alert in the late 1960s. Today, an investigation aided by amateur sleuth is steadily unraveling the mystery of the Zodiac Killer. Now, when a, he was an elusive psychopath that terrorized Northern California in the 1960s and early 70s. He called himself the Zodiac Killer, and he's been a source of fascination for half a century. He's credited with five murders, but he claimed to have killed 37. Cases inspired numerous books and films, including 1971's Dirty Harry with Clint Eastwood, not the least because of uh, Zodiac's bra uh, brazenly twisted uh, M.O. Arrogant killers sent postcards and letters to San Francisco area newspapers taunting police and threatening more mayhem. And a number of the notes included codes, ciphers, encoded messages written in a bizarre-looking alphabet of his own invention. First one of these went to the San Francisco Chronicle, San Francisco Examiner, and the Vallejo Times Herald, August 1st, 1969. Each of the newspapers got a third of the message, which, when made public by the newspapers, was soon decoded by a pair of amateur sleuths, a uh, school teacher, and his wife in Salinas, California. The four and eight character message said, I like killing people because it's fun. It's even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. And he said uh, his targets, his victims, uh, will become his slaves in the afterlife. Nobody said he was totally well-wrapped. Zodiac's complex coded statement didn't reveal the killer's identity, as the sender suggested it would in a separate letter, at least according to the FBI, but it did lay bare his depraved intentions. At the uh, beginning of his murder spree, his prime quarry seemed to have been young couples first confirmed victims were uh, high schooler 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen and 17-year-old David Arthur Faraday of Vallejo, California. About 10.15 p.m. on December 20, 1968, the pair parked at a well-known lover's lane on Lake Herman Road in Benicia, California. A little after 11 p.m., a passing motorist discovered their bodies lying on the ground. Faraday had been shot once in the head, point blank, with a handgun, and Keller struck Jensen five times in the back as she tried to run. You know, a similarly gruesome scenario unfolded, unfolded months later. Four miles away in Vallejo's deserted Blue Rock Springs Park, 22-year-old Darlene Farron and 19-year-old Michael Magiu were parked there about uh, midnight, July 4th, 1969. Another car pulled up behind them. Driver approached the couple's vehicle, fired five 9mm Luger shots that struck both Farron and Megu, and then walked away. Of course, when he heard the wounded young man moan, he walked back and shot the victims twice more each. But the boy sometime, somehow survived and was able to describe his attacker as a stocky male with short, light brown, curly hair. That same night, a man called police from a nearby gas station taking credit for that attack and also for the murders of um, Jensen and uh, Faraday. More than six months earlier, earlier, several months later, another young couple enjoying a romantic uh, ideal became prey for a hooded intruder who approached them from behind a tree. 
September 27th, 1969. Brian Calvin Hartnell, 20, and Cecilia Shepard, 22, were picnicking at a remote location on the shore of Lake uh, Berryessa in Napa County. Man brandishing an automatic pistol, claiming to be an escaped convict, wanted their car and confronted him. That's according to the Napa County Sheriff's Department report. Hartnell offered the man his wallet and car keys, but instead of taking them, uh, he bound a couple of plastic clothesline cord, and then his Hartnell later told authorities, I think I saw him whip out his knife and start stabbing me in the back. Made kind of a chomp-chomp-chomp noise as he rammed the blade in. After leaving the scene, the killer returned to Hartnell's car and scrawled a figure on the door with a black felt-tip pen. That's a circled superimposed with a cross, so it'll come to Zodiac's signature. And beneath that strange symbol, you know, Vallejo, 122068, 7469, September 27th, 69, 630 by knife. Those are the dates of all the Zodiac attacks up to that point. Hartnell's down in his 70s, survived multiple stab wounds, but uh, Shepard died two days later. You know, the next crime broke the lover's lane pattern. Uh, the next month, on October 11th, 1969, it's believed Zodiac murdered San Francisco cabbie Paul Lee Stein, 29, with a shot to the back of the head. Once again, the Chronicle got a letter from Zodiac, this time claiming responsibility for the recent killing with a Scrap of Stein's torn bloody shirt is evidence. It'd be the final confirmed murder by the serial killer, though over the next several years, Zodiac continued to correspond with newspapers, sometimes sending a longer complex cipher while boasting of a string of additional homicides. Over the ensuing decades, there was no shortage of potential suspects. The most prominent was Arthur Lee Allen of Vallejo had been fired from his job as an elementary school teacher in 1968 for inappropriately con inappropriate conduct with students. Allen was interviewed several times over the course of two decades based on uh, strands of circumstantial evidence. He'd reportedly vo uh, voiced a desire to kill people in the past, used a, zo used a, uh, a Zodiac watch known to roll typewriter similar to the killer's. He was eventually convicted in 1974 of sexually assaulting a 8-year-old boy, but no hard evidence could connect Allen, who died in 1992 with the Zodiac killings. And the Zodiac killer also spawned a subculture of armchair PIs and codebreakers who obsess over the killings and the mysterious murderer and have generated new clues and leads that even law enforcement has acknowledged. 1920, a team of cryptographers from the U.S., Australia, and Belgium cracked another of the coded messages sent by Zodiac 50 years earlier to the Chronicle. Known as the 340 cipher due to the number of symbols it has, it read in part, I hope you're having a lot of fun trying to catch me. I'm not afraid of the gas chamber because it'll send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everybody else has uh, nothing. They reach paradise, so they're... Uh, they're afraid of death. January 2021, French consultant Facal Zirau said he had cracked another pair of Zodiac's unsolved ciphers known as Z13 and Z32. That was sent to the Chronicle in 1970. Claimed the code pointed to a named suspect in the murders, although again, no hard evidence could connect that person to the crimes. Meanwhile, investigators are hopeful that modern DNA techniques hold the promise of unmatched roll in like the tide, month after month, in emails, phone calls, texts, and books. 
Twitter messages. Snail mail, as according to Kevin Fagan, a Chronicle reporter who's long covered the case. He said, I've got piles of letters saying the Zodiac is the creepy neighbor upstairs or down the street. Others say it's their father. Murder's not entertainment. There are real victims involved, awful ripple effects on survivors, but people can't resist a spine-chilling narrative. And the Zodiac has it all. He's literally the America's Jack the Ripper. Well, although the Zodiac boasted in his letters of killing as many as 37 people, authorities have linked him to only five in California between 1968 and 1969. High school students, um, Betty Lou Jensen, who was 16, and David Faraday, who was 17, were on their first date when they were murdered in Benicia, California in 68. Darlene Farron, 22, was shot while parked in a lover's lane with her boyfriend, um, who actually survived in Vallejo in 69. Cecilia Ann Shepard, 22, a college student, was attacked and stabbed during a lakeside picnic in Napa County. Her boyfriend, Brian Hartwell, who was 20, survived the attack and gave a detailed description to cops. And the last victim... Paul Lee Stein, 29, was shot in the back of the head while driving a cab in the Presidio Heights area of San Francisco. Well, it's interesting to note that um, when you look at all the evidence, just with as with the original Jack the Ripper, uh, while he's officially supposed to have killed just a few, uh, there's evidence that he may have killed up in the double digits. The problem is people are killed and their bodies dumped and nobody knows for sure. Well, from the Zodiac, let's turn to a murdered nun and a school sex abuse scandal. Murder of 26-year-old Catholic nun stunned Baltimore. Nearly 50 years later, Netflix crime series The Keepers asked if she was killed by a random killer or because she knew too much. Well, in days after Sister Catherine, or Kathy Sesnick, a 26-year-old nun and former teacher at the all-girls Archbishop High School in Baltimore vanished near her apartment on the night of November 7, 1969, her younger sister, Marilyn Sesnick Radakovic, remained convinced she was alive. Radakovic thought uh, she was struggling with whether to stay in her religious order, and as soon as she felt better, she'd call her. She knew that. She kept praying for that. The thought that she was dead really didn't enter her mind. Then January 3, 1970, two months after she disappeared, Radakovic and her family learned that... Uh, where Sesnick was. Two hunters, a father and a son, discovered her partially naked body near a garbage dump tucked away in southwest Baltimore County. Her head had been bashed in. With few answers and little physical evidence, Radakovic believed for decades that Sesnick was the victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But in 2016, she learned her sister may have been struggling with more than one secret before her death. And at the Catholic high school, where she taught English, may have been concealing a history of sexual abuse. She said, I think Kathy was planning to go to the police with what was happening to uh, the girls at um, 
Keogh, according to Jean Wainer, one of the former students. And she was killed to keep her from blowing the whistle. And certainly uh, that could well be the case. Well, more than 50 years after she was found in that freezing January day, it's still not clear who killed her or why. Or what she knew when she died. And those questions were explored in the 2017 Netflix crime documentary series called The Keepers, which filmmakers hope will bring exposure to a case police say was quite active, but still unsolved. This was about trauma and torture and crimes and silencing, according to director Ryan White. People are ready to talk and they're ready for somebody to listen. At the Archdiocese of Baltimore, later publicly acknowledged, church officials believe Father Joseph Maskell abused multiple Keogh students during his uh, time as the school chaplain and counselor in 1967 and 1975. The exact number of his victims remains unclear. The Archdiocese said it reached financial settlements with more than a dozen of them, while White says he knows of nearly 40. And some of the survivors, including Weyer, spoke out in the Keepers and detailed how Maskell assaulted them sexually and psychologically, raping them, drugging them, threatening them with his gun, and how nothing was done to stop him. In fact, the students alleged that Father E. Neil Magnus, another priest at the school, knew about uh, Maskell's abuse and was complicit in it. An accusation supported by a report from the Maryland Attorney General released in April 2023 that found some uh, 150 Baltimore priests sometimes working in teams, sexually molested at least 600 children from 1940s to 2002, with church leaders repeatedly covering up the crimes. Baltimore Archbishop William Laurie has apologized for what he called the soul-searching abuse documented in the 2023, uh, the soul-searing, excuse me, I can't even read my own handwriting, abuse documented in the 2023 report, but in Maskell's case, former Archdiocese spokesperson Sean Kane said church officials only learned of his crimes in 1992 and sent him to therapy before removing him from his position as a priest in 1994 as soon as they could corroborate um, the accounts. Maskell was never charged and denied the accusations until he died in 2001. And since Magnus died in 1988... It was never formally accused by students until four years later. King said the church uh, is not going to comment on any priest accused after their death. Wayne or another survivors believe Sesnick knew what Maskell was doing and wanted to put an end to it. It's one of the theories Baltimore County Police are investigating. According to county spokesperson Elsie uh, Armacost, we still remain optimistic it's possible for us to clear this case. Maskell's body was exhumed in 2017 so his DNA could be compared with a sample from the crime scene that police had preserved for nearly 50 years, but the results were negative, according to the Washington Post. Still, investigators who have one living suspect they haven't named are also probing possible links between Sesnick's death and three other unsolved homicides in the area. According to Armacost, we've never proven that Sister Kathy was killed because of her knowledge of abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Radakovic, the sister now in her 70s, still hopes for justice for her sister. She said, I think there are way too many secrets, and these girls have led the way with their courage, and I think everybody needs to know uh, to follow them and have the courage to tell the truth. 
Well, that would be interesting to, to find out if, in fact, um, she was killed to keep her mouth shut. Well, one of the uh, most interesting murder cases involved Bob Crane, a TV star who uh, was in Hogan's Heroes. He made millions laugh as the star of a hit sitcom in the 60s, but uh, a smile masked a sexual obsession that may have led to his murder. And at one point in time, he was on the top of the world. I mean, there were magazines and there were lunchboxes and everything else with Hogan's Heroes on it. June 29, 1978, began like all other summer days in Scottsdale, Arizona. Temperatures soared above 100 degrees by noon, and well-heeled residents took refuge in their air-conditioned homes, leaving the wide streets as empty as any southwest ghost town. Didn't end that way, though. Responding to a call from one of the city's apartment complexes, local police found the battered body of a 49-year-old man sprawled in bed, and he had two huge gashes above his left ear and an electrical cord knotted around his neck. After learning the flat was leased to the nearby uh, Windmill Dinner Theater, police asked its manager, Ed uh, Beck, to identify the corpse. Beck told the press, there's no way I could identify him from one side, but the other side, oh yes. The bludgeon form sprawled on the bed had once been Bob Crane, a TV star known to millions as a wise-cracking title character in the 1960s sitcom Hogan's Heroes. And almost 30 years later, still unsolved slaying of the, the actor whose grisly death revealed his links to a seedy showbiz netherworld of sex addiction and homemade pornography has spawned at least one movie, half a dozen books, and enough rumors to uh, fill the town. Well, There have been three investigations and a vast spider's web of speculation, but for those that loved him, it's the unanswered questions that are haunting. The dead actor's son, Robert Crane, the author of Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder, told Entertainment Weekly in 2019, there's still fog. When I say fog, it's that word, closure, which I hate. There's no closure. You live with death for the rest of your life. You know, the story of Bob Crane's brutal death began with laughter. In 1960s sitcoms with lame jokes punctuated by bad laugh track with a norm, but only one dared to mix that cheesiness with bumbling Nazis, and that was Hogan's Heroes. The show that debuted on CBS in 1965 followed the exploits of a motley crew of inmates in a German POW camp under the command of the womanizing Colonel Robert Hogan. The show was an overnight hit. And it starred, the Connecticut-born Crane, worked as a radio host before going in front of the camera, became a household name. Fame followed him to, and allowed him to indulge his appetites. Married to um, his high school sweetheart, uh, Ann Terzian, and with three children, Robert and his sisters Deborah and Karen, the actor who used his celebrity to meet women and collected nude photos and eventually films of these unsuspecting females. According to Robert, there were no drugs, no coercion, none of that. Women just liked him or found him handsome or whatever it was. They'd hook up. 
Aiden Crane in his section on cinematic conquest was John Huntley Carpenter, a video equipment salesman who helped him acquire gadgetry to watch and make erotica long before the birth of internet porn. And his sexual behavior affected some of his Hogan's hero castmates. He uh, had an affair with co-star Cynthia Lynn, who played the secretary of Helga in the first season. Moved on to her replacement, Patricia Olson, who stepped in to play a similar role the next year. Olson went by the stage name of Sigrid Valdez, became Robert Crane's uh, second wife in 1870, shortly after he divorced uh, Terzian. A couple had two children, Scott and Anne Marie. But Olson resented the influence Carpenter had over her husband, a dynamic captured in the 2002 film uh, Autofocus starring Greg uh, Kinnear. And once Crane's sexual behavior became widely known, mainstream Hollywood turned its back on him. According to Robert, uh, talking about his father, he made some bad moves. Um, he, filmed, he filmed a movie for Disney in which he played a wholesome father. Crane shared photographs of women he'd been with to members of the crew, and that hurt him because executives found out. You know, people talk. Started getting in publications like the National Enquirer. Well, the son maintains his father's sexual proclivities never veered into the dangerous territory. I think he might have been overcompensating for the lack of a solid career in the final years, and maybe that fed his ego to meet women in the nightclub and they go off and sleep together. I never looked at it as dark because it was always consensual. But by that point in time, Crane's star was fading fast. The culture had changed. Hogan's Heroes ended its run the previous year. Work dried up for the middle-aged actor whose second marriage was on the rocks. Soon he was only scoring guest spots on shows like The Love Boat and performing on stage at small venues like The Windmill in Phoenix. Two days before his death, he called his oldest son. He was, according to Robert, he was two weeks shy of 50. He said, I'm making changes. I'm divorcing Patty. He wanted to Loose people like John Carpenter would become a pain in the butt and he wanted a clean slate. But that never happened. Robert believes when his father tried to pull away, Carpenter had followed the start of Arizona, became enraged. According to Robert, they had a breakup of sorts. Carpenter lost it. He was being rejected. He was being spurned like a lover. There were eyewitnesses uh, that night at a club in Scottsdale who said they had an argument. A few hours later, Clint was found dead in his blood-splattered apartment. DNA tested wasn't available in 78, but all the roads led back to Carpenter. Crane's, uh, Crane's partner in porn, but not only did the cops know that the uh, the pair hadn't been fighting, but there was no sign uh, a forced entry at the apartment was suggested the victim knew his assailant. And the police found blood-matching Crane's type in Carpenter's rental car, but absent a murder weapon, they couldn't persuade the county attorney to issue an arrest warrant. Twelve years later, Scottsdale Detective Jim Haynes discovered a previously unseen crime scene photo that showed a speck of brain tissue in Carpenter's car. Now, the actual tissue sample, of course, is long gone, but the image was ruled inadmissible by a, was ruled admissible by a judge, and Carpenter was eventually charged with Crane's murder in 1992. Prosecutors had an uphill battle, though. DNA testing of the blood proved inconclusive, and witnesses came forward to say Crane and Carpenter had a friendly dinner the night before the killing. And Crane's predilections gave the defense plenty to play with.
They suggested an enraged husband or boyfriend could have attacked the actor. Barry Vassal, then a detective with the Scottsdale Police, touts vengeance for an infidelity was a motive. According to him, Bob was an unconfrontational guy, and these women liked him. I don't think I ever interviewed one that disliked him or was mad at him. In the end, there wasn't enough evidence to convict Carpenter, who was acquitted in 1994 and died four days later. I mean, excuse me, four years later. In death, Bob Crane got the Hollywood treatment. Mourners at the funeral in Westwood included uh, Patty Duke, John Aston, Carol O'Connor, and all the heroes' castmates. Man who would love in dangerous places suddenly had uh, had it in abundance. Well, the Paul Bears at his funeral in Westwood included Hogan Heroes co-star Robert Clary and son Robert. Clary uh, died in 2022. It's too bad from all accounts he was other than his predilections. He, everybody said he was a nice guy. Well, let's talk about an LGBTQ icon died in New York City. The death of Marcia Johnson, the veteran of the Stonewall Riots, who was a catalyst for the gay rights movement, was initially ruled a suicide until friends of the sexual pioneer pushed back. July 6, 1992, a week after New York City's Pride Parade, the body of 46-year-old um, LGBTQ rights advocate Marshall Johnson was found floating in the Hudson River off the West Village Piers. Police, of course, quickly ruled the death a suicide, but many believe she was murdered. Friends noted the lack of her, the back of her head was badly bruised and bloodied, and witnesses had seen a mob of people chasing her. And what's more, while Johnson suffered from intermittent mental health issues, she had never been suicidal. At least that was what her friends insisted. She didn't leave a note. Only after years of public pressure was the cause of death changed to undetermined and remains a mystery today. Fierce and flamboyant champion of equality, Johnson was an African-American transgender woman, though that term wasn't used at that uh, during her lifetime. And she variously referred to herself as a transvestite or a drag queen. However, one, however you want to classify her, she helped spearhead the Stonewall Riots in 1969 and with her close friend, Sylvia Rivera, who died in 2002, later established what's now known as the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, a group committed to um, helping... Um, homeless trans youth in New York City. Later in life, she was an AIDS activist. She said in an interview just before she died, which was aired posthumously in Pay It No Mind, a 2012 documentary on her life, you never completely have your rights, one person, until you have all your rights. She was born August 24, 1945, the child of a General Motors assembly line worker and his wife. Growing up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, she took up cross-dressing at an early age and was bullied for it. After high school, she moved to Greenwich Village and performed sex work to survive, resulting in numerous arrests and lived largely on the street. Also lived large, uh, resulting in the village's uh, gay milieu. 
Johnson was a fixture in the nightlife scene. She toured the world with a drag theater troupe, The Hot Peaches, and became known as the Mayor of Christopher Street for her exuberantly generous spirit and signature style. Magnetic with a megawatt grin, she typically donned long flowing robes and shimmering dresses, red high heels, and the round rigs crowned with fresh flowers. Johnson took her surname from the local Howard Johnson's. The P stood for pay it no mind, her stock response when asked about her sexuality. Marshall, according to Randolph uh, Randy Wicker, a pioneer gay rights activist who was Johnson's roommate for the last dozen years of her life, Marshall was absolutely magical. Everybody that met her fell in love with her. Incredibly perceptive, incredibly bright. People say Marshall's the poorest person I know, but she's the, also the happiest person I know. In the late 60s, Johnson began frequently in the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar on 7th Avenue. In those days, public expression of homosexuality, even holding hands, was illegal in New York. Many gay bars uh, were mob-owned, including the Stonewall, which was run by the Genovese family. Bars were raided occasionally, but the police were often bribed and tipped off management in advance that there was going to be a raid. June 28, 1969, no, the NYPD conducted a surprise raid on the Stonewall, roughing up the patrons and arresting 13 people. That action set off days of riots and arresting uh, other arrests and demonstrations. Johnson's precise role in in clear. Some say she threw a shot glass at the bar's mirror. She claimed to have climbed a lamppost and dropped a handbag containing a brick on a police car. Either way, she was been hailed for being in the vanguard of that watershed moment in the LGBTQ history. Lived hand to mouth till a friend brought her to Wicker's apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey in 1980 and asked her if she could put her up for the night. According to Wicker, she ended up staying 12 years. Adding Johnson preferred to sleep on the floor. Marsha had been shot in the back at some point and the bullet was too close to the spine to remove. Especially when it was going to rain, the bullet would start hurting. She felt more comfortable on a hard surface. Though a devout Catholic, Johnson frequented different houses of worship. I'd find her in the strangest churches, according to her friend, Sasha McCaffrey. Um, she'd be dressed in velvet, and she'd be throwing glitter. Well, Wicker, who owned a lighting store for three decades, was devastated by Johnson's death and angered by the police response. He says it was hardly in the investigation because they just weren't interested. It's still happening every day. Trans women, many of them black, are killed, and it's not a big story, and each one of them is a human being. 2012, thanks largely to pressure by New York City Councilman Thomas Duane and others, police finally reopened the Johnson case as a possible homicide. But it still remains unsolved. Pay it no mind, in a 2017 Netflix documentary, The Death and the Life of Marsha P. Johnson, brought further attention to Johnson's story. And efforts continue to find out how she died, and if she was murdered, who did it? Meanwhile, Johnson has attained mythic status in 2021. Uh, Guerrilla artist, that's the bronze statue of Johnson at the, the site of a planned permanent memorial across from the Stonewall Inn. That statue has since been moved to a nearby LGBTQ center. A Marsha P. Johnson Memorial Fountain is located on the river nearby. Marsha's always been the same person, loving, wonderful sense of humor, knew how to pick people up when they were down, according to Wicker. Did what she could to make the world better and make people she was interacting with feel better. That's the story of Marsha. Well, on that particular note, we go to the end of the day's show. We'll be back.
tomorrow. And talk about um, the solving of a cold case. Don't really have enough time to go into it right now. You know, I want to point out that quite often, if you depend on the courts and attorneys to give you justice, you're wasting your time. I've got a, a thing that's been going on for eight years. There's an organized group in El Paso, and they live to take advantage of disabled veterans because, depending on your disability, most disabled veterans have grants available to them. They may not know it, but they do. And there are contractors and attorneys and a couple of judges who think that's, uh, as one said to me, that's free money. We just have to figure out how to force you to ask for it. And then we, we take it and we give you a portion and we keep most of it. Well, this has been going on with me for eight years. And even though I've proven that everybody lied, they're such wonderful people. And went down to the city to file the complaint because the contractors in question were roofers and they destroyed the roof. And I was told, well, they take our inspectors out to lunch every single day. We're not going to say anything against them. And then one of the city officials said, uh, people like you got plenty of money. If you'd open up that wallet and spread some around, you wouldn't be having these issues. I said, who's you people? You Jews. You all got plenty of money, and you got that VA money, too. Well, I went to see the city manager about this situation. And I'm arrested for, quote, bothering my betters, unquote. Disabled veterans in El Paso, Texas, are second-class citizens. And unfortunately, nobody wants to listen. You know, this is a military town. How could they be anti-disabled veteran? Well, as one person said to me, disabled people look funny. And they're not entitled to anything because they're disabled. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. And once again, if you listen to Ken Hudnall, the Ken Hudnall Show. Until then, have a truly great evening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.